Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, things have changed between last week and this week. So now I'm the interim director of health in the state of Rhode Island. So that's new for me. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of exciting for me today is so it's great to have the first guest in my role now as interim director of health is Dr. Mitch Levy. Dr. Levy, how are you today? Well, I appreciate being here and uh, congratulations on your new role, by the way. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Lee. You've been a wonderful resource to us throughout the pandemic in the state. So first, thank you for that. And what I, one of the things I just want to make sure our listeners know is one of the things that's very comforting to me in public health is when we have someone like you, who's just a learned colleague, who's just an experienced physician. And, and one of the things we're going to talk about today was what it was like to learn about how to treat COVID. And because one of the things that you were in a position to do was actually, one, not just see this new disease, but figure out how to treat it, not just locally, but on a national level. So now it begs the first question is, Dr. Levy, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? You know, and so that way our listeners have an idea of why we're so excited to have you here today. Sure, happy to, Jim um, and Phil. So I'm uh, currently Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Brown University. And I'm a system-wide director for critical care at uh, the Lifespan System. I have been involved in sepsis research for over 20 years. Sepsis is, as some of you may know, the body's reaction to infection, and certainly severe COVID-19 is in fact sepsis and septic shock. And uh, I have been involved from the beginning with building guidelines first uh, early in 2004 for just sepsis. And then more recently over the last two years, I was appointed by Dr. Anthony Fauci to the NIH guidelines panel for, panel for treatment of COVID-19. And we've been meeting uh, once a week and sometimes every other week uh, also uh, for producing these guidelines, which are now the most heavily read guidelines uh, in the world for treating treatment of COVID-19. So Dr. Levy, I just want to uh, second that from Dr. McDonald. Uh, thank you again for all your assistance uh, personally from the, to the Rhode Island Department of Health and here in the state. And I also do want to acknowledge uh, that we are lucky to have you here in Rhode Island. You are truly a world expert, not just a, a state expert or a national expert. You are a world expert, not just in sepsis, of course, but in COVID-19. So thank you for all your help uh, yeah, on behalf of the state of Rhode Island. Uh, you've truly been unbelievable to us here. Let's My start pleasure. from the beginning here. So you're a pulmonologist and a critical care intensivist. So you specialize especially in uh, keeping people alive uh, in the very basic sense, but also in breathing and diseases of the respiratory tract. Talk to us from your perspective and expertise, what has made COVID-19 specifically in the virus, SARS-CoV-2, different from other respiratory viruses? Were you surprised to see this virus? Were you surprised to see a pandemic? What makes it different than what we've seen in the past? Well, I th- that's a great question. I think we're all we were all surprised by the the extent of the pandemic. I don't think any of us were prepared for it. It's important to remember that coronaviruses have been around a long time, and there was something different about coronavirus two, uh, SARS CoV two, and remember that SARS, which was the the, the severe uh, uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, and MERS which was the, uh, the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, disease system, were uh, both caused by coronaviruses. And um, they were self-limited. The SARS was prevalent in Canada and in Asia, but self-limited. And MERS was, again, mainly in uh, the Middle East. 
but they wound up uh, not really progressing to the pandemic. And then a mutation happened uh, in the way in which coronavirus attached to the, both the upper airway and then the lower airways. And that's what I think really surprised us. First of all, the, the coronavirus associated with COVID um, led to a form of respiratory disease called COVID ARDS. So ARDS simply means acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. But it was different than what we're used to. And what was it was associated with a higher degree of kidney failure, uh, a higher degree of neurologic failure, and more shock than we see in the usual ARDS that's caused by bacteria and other viruses. So what we found in, back in late February, early March of 2020, is we were seeing a form of devastating lung disease that we had just never seen before. And that's probably was the most unsettling thing for those of us as scientists and also as clinicians that we were seeing a form of respiratory illness that we had never seen before. You know, Dr. Levy, I want to just sort of follow up on that and really kind of connect it now to the hospitals. Like one of the things you've seen in Rhode Island, really across the United States, is just how hard it's been for on hospitals, hospital capacity. And, and yet you work in the intensive care unit where really it, it is, you know, this is really battleground one here. What's it been like working in the intensive care unit, maybe from the beginning of the pandemic to what it's like now? You know, I remember some conversations you had earlier, just how hard it was just to ventilate patients. But give us a little firsthand view of what it was like. Great. I'm happy to do that. So there are several things. First, we were all so much in the dark about this new disease. We, we understand how to treat bad uh, lung injury, uh, whether it's caused by a bacteria or a virus, but there was something different about this one. And the main characteristic that we saw that happened was uh, early on, people weren't as sick. And then about two weeks into this illness, and I'm talking about that first surge, uh, we were seeing people who would develop severe critical illness where their lungs would fail. And so that's one. Two, the second thing is, was the unknown aspect of it. We were very nervous about how it was transmitted in the beginning. So we didn't treat patients. Usually we treat patients with bad lung problems, with uh, um, things that fit in the nose, like the cannulas that people see on TV all the time, but that had very, very high flow. In the beginning of this illness, we were uncomfortable using that level of high flow because we were worried it was creating aerosol drops that were gonna spread into the environment and infect the rest of the staff. The second thing that we didn't know is how well were we protected by all of the personal protective equipment that we were wearing. And we really had no way of knowing until either people got sick or they didn't get sick. Fortunately, almost all the transmission that we've seen, well, actually I should say all the transmission we've seen in healthcare workers have actually been outside from the community, not in any way related to when you wear uh, proper, protective, personal protective equipment, PPE, when you wear that equipment, it really does prevent healthcare workers from being infected. But we were very nervous about it. Uh, then the next issue was people just got sicker and sicker and the mortality rate at, in Rhode Island, for example, of someone who wound up in the intensive care unit 
was over 50%. And for someone who wound up on a mechanical breathing machine was over 60%. So that's extraordinarily high. If you wind up on a breathing machine for, let's say, a bacterial pneumonia, the mortality rate in patients like that is often 30 40%. Here we're talking 60%. And 60% in young people with diabetes, a high blood pressure, people who massively obese. So these are people who are relatively young with, as we say, comorbidities, so complicating medical factors, who despite any efforts we were making to breathe for them, still would, six out of 10, would die on a breathing machine. And, and so those are, those are the real issues that we faced. And we'll uh, maybe perhaps in a moment talk a little bit more about the decision-making of, uh, that we had to face later on uh, during the last couple of surges uh, about who should or shouldn't get those breathing machines. But at least in the beginning, the most devastating aspect was this was a very different form of lung injury than we had ever seen previously. Yeah, thank you for that, Dr. Levy. And I want to just highlight a point and, and maybe have you uh, describe in a little bit more detail. You mentioned that you're seeing younger people. And I guess one of the reasons that we're hearing uh, and that people in general don't want to get vaccinated, uh, you know, aren't that concerned about COVID, you know, there's a perception that COVID doesn't affect young people. We know it doesn't affect young people as much. Tell us about who you're seeing, maybe even some of the stories, if there's patients that come to mind, who are some of the people that you're seeing in the ICU that have gotten critically sick? Are they just all, you know, 90-year-olds uh, with uh, tons of medical conditions? Are you seeing younger people? And are you seeing uh, unvaccinated people? Who are you seeing admitted to the ICU? Yeah, great question. So, uh, and it's very easy for me to answer this. Um, so in the early surges, the first surge and the second surge, uh, especially the first surge before the vaccines became available, these were all uh, older people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who were obviously not vaccinated with complicated past medical histories. And in many ways, unfortunately, many of those folks actually died. But the second surge, and in particular, this surge with Omicron, we're seeing people who are 20s, 30s, 40s, and they're dying in my intensive care unit. Now, what you said is really accurate. I, I um, First, let me say that for someone, especially uh, someone not to have a vaccine, as someone who's seeing death all the time for the last two years, I don't understand why people would not get vaccinated. And often it's because of the misinformation that's being spread on the internet. But just as importantly, what I would say is a little bit not getting vaccinated is like rolling the dice. Certainly, if you are a diabetic or have a lot of, if you're obese uh, or have high blood pressure, I can't even describe how foolish I think it is, stupid, honestly, to not get vaccinated. But I'm also seeing people who are otherwise healthy in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are unvaccinated. So for the last six months, the 90% of the people who wind up in my intensive care unit are unvaccinated adults. That's very important to say that. And, and, that, and that's why I say it's a little like rolling the dice. Yes, 
uh, the incidence and likelihood of you as a 35-year-old winding up in my intensive care unit, even if you're unvaccinated, is relatively low. But if you roll the dice and they come out poorly for you, you're going to die in my intensive care unit. Thank you, Dr. Levy. And I, you know, we were talking a little bit before this, and you were also sharing stories about ivermectin. And just to uh, remind folks about uh, what ivermectin, ivermectin is a deworming medication. Uh, as a maybe a TMI aside, I've actually taken ivermectin when I was traveling to Africa because I was concerned that maybe I picked up a parasite or a worm. Uh, that's what it should be used for, as well as deworming animals. But there's been a lot of misinformation out there uh, about uh, ivermectin treatment of COVID, and I think this touches on your misinformation. Have you seen people requesting ivermectin, and what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, well, as a... Uh, 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 a couple of things. Uh, first, the NIH panel, uh, I'm on, as I mentioned before, I'm on the uh, National Institute of Health guideline panel for the treatment of COVID-19. And um, we have reviewed the literature very carefully. And there are no well-done randomized controlled trials that support the use of ivermectin. And in fact, we, we have on the NIH panel, we have the data often presented to us first, and there was a group in the United Kingdom that also um, did the trial that discovered the value of steroids in COVID-19, and they, they did a randomized controlled trial, uh, well done, uh, looking at ivermectin, and there was absolutely zero impact. And there's a group called FLAC, F-L-A-C-C, that's headed by Paul Marek, who's since been fired from his university that actually is the one that pushes it a lot on the internet, despite the fact that there are absolutely no data in support of the use of ivermectin. We've had in the last, uh, I would say three months, we've had two separate instances of young people who wound up very, very critically ill in my unit, both of whom have died, both families were insisting that we give them ivermectin, so much so that one family member in particular threatened the life of one of the docs who was on service at that point uh, for not giving their daughter ivermectin. And it's just a, a compounded tragedy. You know, I think you really highlight a point about where treatment has gotten a little bit weird. Like, in other words, I, I think it's it's safe to say that you know, there are experts who really know medicine and we call them doctors and, and we have ideas about what standard treatment should be. And I think it's important just to get into what is the standard treatment right now for someone in the hospital with COVID. And I think it'd just like be nice to know what that is. Like what is standard inpatient treatment for someone who has COVID in the hospital? Uh, that's a great question. And so I would actually start before the hospital. Um, one of the most important, I, I am someone who's become convinced that the key to survival in COVID-19 is early treatment. That by the time you wind up in my intensive care unit, uh, I don't think the die is completely cast, but you're behind the eight ball, let's just say. That's why the mainstay therapy in my mind is the monoclonal antibodies. Now, the monoclonal antibodies are administered uh, via an infusion as to outpatients with mild COVID-19. Unfortunately, with the Omicron virus, a number of the most important monoclonal antibodies 
were not effective against Omicron. But prior to Omicron, Delta and the earlier variants, the Alpha variants, these monoclonals were highly effective, and I think in many ways life-saving. And in fact, I think at some point President Trump, uh, when he was president, uh, actually received uh, the monoclonal antibodies, which people feel in part might be why he didn't get much sicker. Yeah, he got the Regeneron um, one. That's right. You're right. Right. Exactly. Now there's still a newer monoclonal antibody that's investigational, that's being studied by, studied by some of the members of the infectious disease uh, division here at Brown University and at Rhode Island Hospital in the Merriam. So they are making a new monoclonal antibody that's specifically to which Omicron is, is sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's some very good news if it's available. There are also some other agents. Uh, there's um, uh, an, an oral agent that's an antiviral that does have uh, some effect against Omicron. So that's what the mainstay of outpatient therapy is. There have been a number of studies that have looked at the use of steroids uh, in outpatients that have all been negative. So we don't use anything but the monoclonal antibodies. There was some question for a while about whether people with mild disease or even more moderate disease would benefit from convalescent plasma. That is plasma or like blood product from people who have, have recovered from uh, COVID-19. Nonetheless, that also has not proven to be effective. So we no longer recommend uh, convalescent plasma for patients uh, with moderate disease. So really it's the monoclonal antibodies. Then once you're sick and require hospitalization, there are a couple of therapies that are very important. Remdesivir, which is an antiviral agent. There's some argument about it, but at least in the United States, we are strong believers in the use of remdesivir. Uh, second, and just as important, is anyone who's receiving supplemental oxygen, and for the most part, the reason to be hospitalized is because you require oxygen. The next most important therapy is steroids, dexamethasone. So a course for 10 days of dexamethasone has been shown to also be life-saving in patient, hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And then finally, uh, of interest is uh, early blood thinners in hospitalized patients have also been proven to have a survival benefit. So recently, the NIH guidelines panel uh, has recommended once you're hospitalized, to receive a blood thinner um, for, for if you have COVID-19. Once you're in the intensive care unit, we will stop the remdesivir, of course, do the supportive therapies with oxygen, better, stronger oxygen, and mechanical ventilation if you need it. And if you haven't been on uh, steroids, then we'll start steroids then. And then finally, there's something called tolicizumab, which is, um, uh, interleukin-6, which is one of the inflammatory mediators that are activated by the coronavirus, go, goes up in um, uh, COVID-19. And this is a blocker that blocks the activity of uh, IL-6. And, and that has also been shown in a couple of well-done randomized controlled trials to improve survival in COVID-19. I, I just want to point out quickly that's unfortunately a very short list. 
And what's even shorter is the number of ICU-specific therapies, which is why the vaccine is so important. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Levy, for that. It's a good reminder to get vaccinated for sure. <laughs> and uh, I have been impressed about the speed to which these treatments though, have been brought to market. And I, I do think the scientific and research community has stepped up, certainly in perspective of how other treatments uh, take to develop the number of years that, you know, and research and development that often takes uh, in those times. But Dr. I Levy, I wanted to touch on one other thing you mentioned too. You, you, you talked about that story where, you know, one of the nurses or ICU staff there had been literally threatened, their safety had been threatened uh, when uh, when the staff had rightfully so not given a, an unapproved treatment for COVID-19. And it just made me think about a little bit about the toll that the pandemic has taken, especially on our healthcare workers. And I just wanted to hear from you as someone in a leadership role, certainly for one of our most important critical care sectors of medicine. Uh, what are you seeing uh, in the ICUs? How how uh, staffed up are you? How, you know, do you see a lack of staff? And, and what's morale like on the front lines there in the intensive care unit? Yeah, I, I work, I believe I work with the best nursing staff uh, that I've ever worked with at Rhode Island Hospital and the Miriam. And I'm very, very proud of them. And uh, I see them come to work day after day for the last over two years and put up uh, with wearing PPE constantly for a for long periods of time, 12 hours to be exact, uh, maybe taking it off just uh, to have lunch uh, or a quick break. And uh, in the early phases of the pandemic, uh, there were so much appreciation and outpouring of appreciation. And um, I don't know why, maybe because we all got used to living with this terrible pandemic. The nurses like to say, we went from hero to zero. Uh, within months, and I think it's really there is true. We used to we used to have lunches and food sent to us all the time as an expression of the public's appreciation. And suddenly, with the second surge in particular, um, it all evaporated. And and uh, but our struggle with seeing death day in and day out didn't evaporate. And we've been living now for a long time. And I'm talking about my nursing staff, the nursing staff. Uh, the fellows who are in pulmonary critical care and critical care, and the, my providers, the, the faculty of my division of pulmonary and critical care medicine, and not just at Brown, but also all across the state, all across the country, everybody's burned out. I see it. I see it in the nursing staff. Everybody's a little shorter with each other than usual. I see it in my fellows. I see it in the faculty. I, I see it in my colleagues, my friends. We're all a little bit shorter because we thought, okay, it's over. And then Omicron hit. And it's just been very, very difficult to stay cheerful in the face of this constant pandemic. Honestly, Phil and Jim, in no way, not any different than we all feel, anyone who's listening to this podcast, we're just tired of it. You can't go out to eat. You can't do this. It's a mask everywhere. It's, it's just, finally, you're just tired of it. Yeah, I think you... You know, I think it's sort of as we get to our last question, I think as we're, you know, we're just kind of coming to our close here, you know, it kind of begs the question is where do you see the pandemic going? You know, I mean, what are your thoughts on on where COVID-19, you know, will be next in this thought? You know, just any any final thoughts on that, Dr. Levy? Well, I, it's a great question. And I think everybody's trying to answer that. I think we believed for a while that herd immunity was possible. But I think we understand that 
I, what did I hear? There's just a, a like 30, like 3 billion unvaccinated people across the globe that with the resistance to vaccination, we're never going to achieve herd immunity. I mean, unfortunately, maybe uh, many of the people who are unvaccinated will wind up succumbing to COVID and then have their own natural immunity. But I don't think herd immunity is going to become the factor that we thought, unfortunately. And so it feels to me, especially now seeing Omicron and seeing the evolution of even either further variants, it just feels to me like this pandemic is going to be a natural part of our life for the foreseeable future. Masks, uh, social distancing when there are new surges, we're, we're going to adjust our lifestyle to come to grips with always having the possibility of catching a new variant of COVID, which is terrible, but I'm not sure I see a different answer to that. Yeah, you know, it's been great talking to Dr. Mitchell Levy, one of the global experts, uh, certainly on, on intensive care period, and, and also for, for COVID in particular. It, it's been wonderful to have you. And I think, you know, we really think about treatment is coming all, a long way during the pandemic. It, you know, was, we had to learn how to treat a new disease, but now there's effective treatments and an effective vaccine. Quite frankly, in under two years, I, I didn't know that we'd be as far along as we are. One of our traditions at, at Public Health Out Loud, as Stephanie begins to cue the music, Dr. Chan, is our final word with Dr. Chan. So Dr. Chan, what is the final word for today's episode? Thank you, Dr. McDonald, and thank you again, Dr. Levy, for joining us, and thank you for your work in general in addressing this uh, pandemic. And in closing, I do want to leave the listeners with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your week. And here it is from the Persian philosopher Rumi. Life is a balance of holding on and letting go. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.